0: I've won and lost probably every snowboarding competition on the planet. Um, I've been a professional snowboarder for 19 years. Uh, X Games just informed me this was going to be my 21st consecutive uh, Super Pipe appearance. So um, I've been doing it a long time and um, it's been fun. I mean, you know, I've just kind of grown up through snowboarding. Mm -hmm. It's been my companion, and my teacher, and my community, and everything else in between. It's been my life. Um, it's all, I mean, honestly, it's all I've ever really known. That's one of my closest friends, biggest snowboarding half rivals,
1: and the winningest athlete in snowboarding history, Kelly Clark. Hi, everyone. I'm Olympic snowboarder Gretchen Bleiler, and welcome to the very first episode of my new podcast, The Art of Living Extraordinarily where I dive deep into the stories of those who have had the courage to blaze their own trails. We learn the deeper motives that drive these individuals, how they face fears, the challenges and obstacles that they faced, how they got through them, and the biggest lessons that they've learned along the way to living their dreams. Kelly and I got to sit down and have this conversation right before she was officially named to her fifth Olympic halfpipe team. Our conversation covered a wide range of topics and was a deep dive into her biggest life lessons learned from the massive high of winning an Olympic gold medal at the really young age of 18 to one of the lowest points in her life that ultimately led her on a path of discovery and a newfound faith that helped her get snowboarding back. Kelly can also add author to her incredible list of accolades now and her new book, Inspired, is out now. So after you listen to this podcast, be sure to go out and grab a copy. Before we get started, I wanna give a shout out to our sponsor, Alex Supply Co. Alex Supply Co, full disclosure, is a company that I started with my husband a few years ago. And the main reason we started it is because using healthy and sustainable products is definitely one of those small, everyday actions that add up to an extraordinary life. It's the reason you'll always see me walking around with my reusable water bottle. But the problem is that every reusable bottle out there is impossible to clean. Eventually, they fill up with bacteria, they start to stink, it's gross. So with Alex, we fix that by creating the first ever stainless steel bottle that opens in the middle so you can actually clean it. I mean, it makes total sense, right? A bottle you can actually clean out? It's perfect for water, but it's actually incredible for smoothies and other drinks that you can't clean out of other bottles. And because it opens in the middle, it saved me on so many camping trips by becoming two cups to share with a friend or even an impromptu cocktail shaker. The list goes on and on. The name also stands for Always Live Extraordinarily, an inspiration and a hydration partner, all while you're going out pursuing your dreams. We've just released a couple other awesome handy products too, so right now you can get 20% off with code GRETCHEN. G R E T C H E N, head over to alexbottle.com and use code Gretchen for 20% off. Okay, enough with the intro. Let's jump into it.
0: Kelly, welcome. I find it funny that you're interviewing me. I feel I slightly more awkward than, <laughs> my, than usual. Usually nothing gets to me with I interviews. I can handle anything, but you I know. make me feel a little, a little vulnerable. Like, yeah, I feel like when I say the answers, you're going to know if they're true or not. You're like Santa. <laughs> I know everything. Yes. I'm aware. I'm aware.
1: Well, let's go back to that, to the beginning um, I mean, how did you get started in snowboarding in the first place and where did you grow up and what was your family dynamic and take us
0: back to young Kelly Clark? Uh, my, my dad was a ski bum and he, he just wanted to ski as much as he could. So he thought, well, if I live in Vermont and if I open up a restaurant, I can ski all day and then run the pizza place at night. So that was, um, that was my life growing up. I grew up upstairs from a pizza place. And my dad had me out on the hill um, on skis when I was two years old. And I was in the development program at my local mountain um, in ski racing. And I made it to be, I think I lasted to be a J4. Um, In 1990 was the first year snowboarding was even allowed at Mount Snow, which was my home mountain. And um, oddly enough, the ski racing program that I was in, seemed a little bit too competitive for me which is awfully uh ironic now considering yeah, what you're i do very competitive person yeah it was it was just too intense as a, as a young kid and i just didn't want to have anything to do with it and i saw snowboarding and i just thought wow this looks amazing and so i started uh um, <clears throat> my local elementary school had a, a winter sports program and at the winter sports program snowboarding wasn't an option because um you know i'll probably mention it a few times, but. You know, I started snowboarding before it was cool. It just really wasn't a thing. And I wanted to to have snowboarding as an option. I didn't want to ski or go bowling or go sledding. I wanted to snowboard. So I went around to all my classes. They told me if I could get enough signatures, I could start the winter sports program for snowboarding and we would have an option to take snowboarding lessons. So I did that in fourth grade, kind of progressed from there. Um, Skipped enough ski racing practice to where my parents stopped paying for it. I remember I actually used to leave my snowboard boots at home and my ski racing locker had my snowboard and it was a Burton Air three O, and my skis in it and I would go to ski racing practice in the morning and I thought I had everybody fooled. I would skip out on afternoon ski racing practice and I would go snowboarding. <laughs> but the whole thing was is my snowboard boots were at home. So I would strap it in my ski boots into my snowboard and oh, I just classic. thought I had it all figured out until my coach... Asked uh, my dad if I was feeling okay because every afternoon I was absent. No way. So that ended poorly, but uh, I just de- I definitely got a little bit more freedom to snowboard after that because uh, my parents could see that it was a passion of mine. So what were you doing? Like, were you snowboarding on your
1: own? Were you trying to learn <laughs> new tricks? Like, what what were what was getting you so excited about
0: snowboarding at that time? Um, you know the parks and the pipes back then. Skiers weren't even allowed in. Um, I don't know if it was because they didn't want snowboarders on the mountain, so they thought we'll just give them their own zone or what. But there was parks, there was pipes, there was jumps, there was rails. There was, I remember there was this big van parked in our snowboard park that we could ride over. You know I, I just love the fact that there was a creative expression that was um, kind of encompassed in this in this sport. And, and back then it, it wasn't necessarily even a sport, it was more culture. Yeah. and um, I just, I loved everything about it. There was freedom, there was creativity, there was individuality. Um, even as a young kid, those were things that just kind of captured me about yeah. the sport. What about the Olympics back
1: then? Were the Olympics something that you watched on TV? Was it something that inspired you, or did that kind of come later?
0: Um, I, I actually never wanted to compete. Um, my friends and I who would ride around the mountain uh, we actually used to we used to make fun of the competition program yeah. because we didn't think it was cool. We're well, yeah. like snowboarding's not you know that's not what snowboarding's about. It's not we're not to compete. And then I had an opportunity when I um, was going in the high school to attend a mountain school. So basically, I, w- I would go to school half day um, and get tutored and accomplish all my kind of high school requirements, and then I could snowboard half day. But the catch was to go to this school, I had to um, I had to start competing. So I figured it was a pretty good trade-off. I reluctantly started competing because I got to go to the school and, and that that school was um, you know, it was a big it was a big drain and a big cost on my family. I remember it was gonna cost six thousand dollars. basically like sending your kid to private school and it was gonna cost six thousand dollars. My parents went to my grandfather and they got um, they tapped into my college tuition fund and mm-hmm. he, he fronted half and I actually had to come up with half when I was fourteen years old. Oh, I had to come wow. up with, with three thousand dollars to pay for my education. Um, and I, I worked my tail off. Um, I, I did every odd Where? job at the restaurant you at could the imagine mhm. And I came up with three thousand dollars so I could um, go to the school and I started competing and I fell in love with competition. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know um, I would enjoy it that much. And I think when you're a little kid, you see the Olympics on, on TV and and you aspire to that. They're, in, they're inspirational. I, I didn't ever think it would be a reality for me until yeah. um, 1998 was the first year snowboarding was became an Olympic sport. And I remember I had recorded um, the Nagano Olympics on a VHS tape and I watched it after school. I think I was 14 years old. Right when I got into that mountain academy and started competing, and I saw the Olympics um, hosting snow a snowboarding event, and I I I just had one of those moments where I said, "This is what I want to do with my life." Yeah. This is exactly what I want to do with my life. I remember. I remember where I, everything about that day. I remember where I was. It was just one of those, one of those defining decisions in my life when I was fourteen. I don't think you. You think you make those sort of choices when you're that age, but for me, it really was something that I decided that day that that shaped the rest of my um, rest of my life. So
1: was that like that very day? Did you sort of make an intention, like
0: I'm going to go to the Olympics for snowboarding? I honestly did, and it's kind of funny because I think back on my childhood and and I kind of picture myself as kind of quiet. Um, I mean, when you're in high school, especially it's like some of the most insecure times of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, I actually referenced this story in my book. There's this, this story that my agent still tells, um, the next year, uh, the X Games was going to be hosted in Mount Snow and I didn't qualify for that event, but they let me in cause I was a good story. And so I got to compete in the X Games and at 15, uh, Fifteen? Yeah, fifteen, I believe. Yeah, fifteen years old. Um, I think it was nineteen ninety nine, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. And and so I got invited to the X Games and um it was funny. I, I did terrible in Half Pipe, which was great. I was a triple threat. Border Cross, slope style, half pipe. Oh I
1: remember that. Yeah. I remember
0: you they were talking about that. Was that a triple was your story. Mm-hmm. Local girl, <laughs> triple threat. Yeah. I think I got like tenth in border cross. I got like twelfth in half pipe. I think I fell both runs in pipe. Um, but in slope style, I ended up in fourth place and, um, it was enough to draw attention from different sponsors like Burton, who I've been with for the last 19 years. Um, and my, I met my longtime agents that day as well. And they came into my parents' restaurant and my agent, Peter still tells his story. He's like, yeah, you were like 15 years old. And I asked you what your plans for the future was. And you looked me in the face and you said, I plan on winning the Olympics. And I think back and I'm like who was that girl? Right. Like, like that was that was my reality. Yeah. That was the direction and I I can't believe I was so confident or I'm I'm thinking now arrogant might be a better term. But uh, you know, I don't know. I think it takes <clears throat> I think it that's what it takes sometimes
1: to it, really f- fulfill a dream and to realize it, to manifest.
0: It was real. To me, it was it was almost real to the point of being factual. That was my plan, and I, I planned on doing it. I, I didn't plan on doing it by the time I was 18 in 2002. I planned on doing it when I was 22 in Torino. Yeah. I figured that was more likely going to happen. But, um, you know, that's, that's not how it all went down. And three years later, I was standing on top of the Olympic podium in Salt Lake City, and Peter was standing there next to me saying, Wow, I can't believe this kid did it. Right. <laughs> well... Let's talk about that because, you know, we were competing
1: together at that time. And I remember you learned a McTwist right before sort of the Olympic qualifiers really were getting into full swing. And that was sort of a turning moment for you because you went from, we were all sort of at the same level to like,
0: you kind of started skyrocketing. Yeah, I think, um... As athletes, we all have our breakout moments, and the moments where it just clicks, and, and you you pray and hope that happens during an Olympic year. And for me, um, those first two qualifiers in Mammoth that year, heading into the two thousand two games, um, I fell on the McTwist both runs and finals, and I got seventh and I got ninth. And I pretty much counted my Olympic dreams as down the tubes, and I thought, you know, I'll ride out these next three qualifiers, but I, 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 in short, I choked bad. And I kind of thought, well, I'm going to stick with that 22-year-old Torino plan because I don't think Salt Lake's going to happen. And there's nothing quite as intense as the Olympic qualifiers when you're U.S. half by rider. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing like it. It's the most, there's the most incredible athletes and who are eligible to go and who have every right to go and not everybody gets to go. And that year, in 2002, we had uh, three spots. And um, after I came back from Christmas, I was working on that one trick, and it started clicking. Mm -hmm. And that was the game changer for me. And all of a sudden, I had this trick that set me above everybody else, and I won the next three Olympic qualifiers. I went into the X Games, where I thought, you know, now I'll get to see how I size up against, you know, the different athletes that weren't from the U.S., and the Kola and the um, Natasha Zurix and all these, the Dorian Vidal and the Fabian Riddler, all these people. And I remember I won X Games that year by 12 points. And I thought to myself, wow, this might be a reality. I might be able to pull this off. It was kind of like I was just shooting for the moon. And all of a sudden I found myself standing there. So what was
1: it like for you at 18 Eighteen. Eighteen years old, standing at the top of the halfpipe at the Olympics in the United States of America in Salt Lake City, dropping in for your first run in finals. What was going through your head? Do you remember? Blink-182. Yeah, That was what was
0: going through my head. Yes, and my I know! And as you loud, were singing out loud. As loud <laughs> as they could go. That was what was going through my head was Blink-182. Um, you know, the music was just a way for me to drown out the nerves there's so many things that fight for your attention, but there was 17,000 people at the halfpipe pipe that day watching. It wasn't your, your run of the mill halfpipe pipe contest. And, um, I was just trying to drown everything out and put a run down and I was able to land my first run. And, um, basically I had, I had qualified first. So I was going to be dropping in last. I was going to know where everybody was at and, Dorian Vidal had bumped me from first place to second place after that first run was complete. Um, or, or perhaps even in her second run, I think she bumped me. So I was sitting in first, and I was gonna drop in last. Um, and I remember that day, actually it's pretty funny, um, in practice for the finals that day, I learned to grab like frontside fives. And I was like, I'm grabbing my fives, this is awesome, I am killing it, this is exactly what I need to be doing. So I was just trying to improve my snowboarding and trying not to let the nerves get to me. But by the time Dorian had finished her second run and final run, um, I, was, I was assured an Olympic medal. I was, in, I was in second place. I was gonna, at the very worst, walk away with silver. And so I thought, well, now now's the time to put it all on the line. And I went as fast and as big and grabbed my five, did my McTwist, did a front seven, and I knew with how those those few contests had led up, I knew if I landed that run, I would probably be untouchable. If I was able to land on my feet, I would give myself a really good shot at winning. And I remember in the finish area, I looked over at my coach and I shrugged my shoulders because we both knew that I did what I needed to do that day to win.
1: Everything you could have
0: done. That and then, it. and then you don't
1: know. You know, sometimes you never know with the judges. You never know. I've had a
0: wide variety of Olympic um, pressure cooker waiting for the judges to deliberate experiences. Um, but that that time in the in in Salt Lake City, um, I came out on top and I won the first gold medal for the U. S. on home soil. Um, it was one of the most the the proudest moments of my life yeah. by far. Wow. So how do
1: you... I mean, you talk about how you were so nervous and you're competing in front of 17,000 people plus all of the people that are watching on TV around the world. How do you handle your nerves? I mean, how, what is your perspective on nerves and how do you kind of have them but then rise above them?
0: Yeah, I think <clears throat> if, if you weren't nervous you wouldn't really be caring enough. So nerves aren't necessarily a bad thing. They're kind of a natural thing. But it's just a matter of not letting them dictate how the day goes for you. I look at it back then in when I was so young, um, it was my approach was just like a survival mode. Um, I peaked at the right time that year, and I was just trying to make sure I didn't get in the way of my kind of... Um, it, Acceleration that was happening with my snowboarding. Um, how and, do you do that though? How do you not get in the way of yourself
1: when you clearly had been doing everything right, like physically, you had what it took, you were on a roll, you had momentum, odds were in your favor. But how do you? I mean, it's also very easy to get yeah. in your own way.
0: I, I think then I was staying in the moment. Yeah. Um, I think when you start to think about. What is going to happen after the event? Um, I don't think you can ever lose your focus. You can just focus on the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I needed to, to fight to focus on what was important. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did then. And that, that has become a practice that, that I've carried long into my career now. Um, and what was important for you that day? Like, what was that? It was grabbing my front five super simple back to the basics it's really not complex people make it into something and the second that you're not thinking about snowboarding the second that you're not thinking you're think you're dropping in thinking my boot is loose or i wish i ate a bigger breakfast or any of those things they have no even thinking about the end result yeah well and that's the biggest that's the biggest thing and i think when i had um placed seventh and ninth in those first two qualifiers i had kissed my dreams goodbye and in turn, I had kissed away all of the expectation I had put on myself. Mm-hmm. And I was was feeling from other people, my sponsors, my family. You know, all that stuff creeps in on you. And once I gave it all up, I could just snowboard. That's so interesting. And that's... So you think that was a big <clears throat> part of the beginning of your momentum. I, I actually suffered an injury over Christmas that, that same year where I tore my meniscus. And so that was like wow, you, you didn't do well in the first two qualifiers, and now you're injured. It was it was a real, like, wow, this is not happening. I don't need to waste energy on dreaming about this anymore. Yeah. And when I let go of everything and all that expectation and all that pressure, um, that's when I started performing well. What were things like for you after you won? For me, after, after the Salt Lake Games, um, the sort of exposure that I experienced after that Olympics was... Unlike anything I had ever experienced and uh, or ever even thought about, I'm a snowboarder. Yeah. I'm thinking about snowboarding, and all of a sudden, uh, you and I both are hanging out with Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. <laughs> that is true. And so, just <laughs> like, how did this happen? You know. <clears throat> and so, life was really different, and and I honestly kind of flailed for a while, um, and I really had to. Um, I, I don't think I even righted myself until I went into the to the next Olympics in two thousand six. Um, But it was kind of too little, too late for me.
1: Talk about that, though, because,
0: I mean, that's something
1: I experienced after 2006. Um, I always talk about how I was prepared to win an Olympic medal, but I wasn't prepared for what would happen after I won the Olympic medal. And it seems like that happens to a lot of athletes. You prepare for so long physically, (coughs) mentally to actually accomplish it and then we get sideswiped by like all of the opportunities that come mm-hmm. afterwards.
0: Yeah, I I think there's there's so much emphasis on on the Olympics and I I've, I've learned one of the greatest lessons I've learned about the Olympics and and going to them is that you shouldn't make them a destination. Mm-hmm. Um, nor should you be defined by it. And and after you experience Olympic success, it's so easy everybody I mean, we we joke about it now. It's like once you become an Olympian, like never former, never future. Like you are an Olympian for life. And once you win a medal, you know what it's like. That's 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 like a an, an addition to the end of your name, like Gretchen Bleiler, Olympic silver medalist. Right. You know, that's just I, I was Kelly Clark, Olympic gold medalist. That's just part of the just an extension of your name now. And it was really hard because I think it, especially for me at eighteen. I was just trying to figure out who I was. Mm -hmm. I was just a kid. I was one year out of high school. I was deferring from college, you know, to prove to my parents that I could make this a career because back then snowboarding wasn't a thing. Yeah. You know, and so um, it's so easy to be defined by what you do. Mm -hmm. And that was something that after experiencing such success in the Olympics that I really had to determine who I was, what I valued, and what I wanted to do with my life and why I wanted to do it. I don't think a lot of people find things that they enjoy to do in life, let alone get to do it for a career and get paid for it. And, um, you know, so we're so fortunate to have those experiences, but if you don't take some time to, to keep your motives in check and to really evaluate why you're doing something, it's very easy to get lost. in in the aftermath of of winning an Olympic medal. Mm -hmm. Um, You kind of said it a
1: little bit earlier, but and I think I've heard you say this, that early on you were kind of looking for, you know, you had the height. You experienced the height. You experienced a gold medal in the Olympics at 18 years old, and you were expecting that to bring you happiness. Mm -hmm. And... You started looking around and you had all of these opportunities. You're hanging out with Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears, and you're like, wait, this isn't, I'm not feeling what I thought I was going to be feeling.
0: Yeah, after, um, I, I, I think when you, we all aspire to be successful, you know, and as a kid, I, I, I never really excelled in school, and snowboarding was really the avenue that I, I, I knew. That's where I could find success, and little did I know that in the back of my head, when I when I said I wanted to be successful, I was thinking it would bring me happiness and I would be fulfilled. I think that fulfillment was what I was looking for, and and all of a sudden I was I was an Olympic gold medalist, and and I, being successful I found very quickly does not go hand in hand with being with fulfilled happiness or with yeah, fulfillment with fulfillment mm-hmm. and happiness. I mean, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world. Um, but honestly, that whole identity thing came in and I struggled with that. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted to do or what I wanted to do next. I didn't have any, um, more aspirations and, and I was lost. I was, I was really lost. And, um, I, I would say I got pretty depressed would be a good, would be a good label for it. I mean, you, you knew me then I was, um, emotional and irrational and, I just was lost. I was just a lost kid, even though I had, a, from the outside perspective, on paper, on paper, you know, had a picture perfect, yeah, idea of what everyone's aspiring for. Yeah, I had it all, but um, it wasn't what I was looking for. And I remember um, it, w- it was two thousand four. I was starting my um, my competition year. We were in we were in Park City. It was the first event of the year, and um I remember writing in my journal that day about how if this was what life was, if this was what life was all about, I didn't I didn't care if I w- woke up tomorrow. And I didn't think anybody else cared. That's how lost I was and and where I w- that was my reality. Outside perspective, you know, I go to the contest that day, I make finals, you know, snowboarding's going well in theory. And I had watched this girl come down um who had fallen both both runs and she was crying and Um, one of her friends just made a comment to her and she said, Hey, it's all right. God still loves you. And I simply overheard that comment and it just stirred something in me that I couldn't ignore. And I thought, wow, I I don't have any, I've never thought about God. I've never wondered why we're on this planet. I've I've never had any sort of background and any sort of faith-based anything but that comment just stirred something in me and I thought, you know, if God loves her, maybe God loves me. And I thought, well, there's there's Bibles in hotel rooms, right? Like, so I, I, I literally went from the bottom of the pipe back to my hotel room and I found a Bible in there and, and it was like King James and it was just this crazy old English and I was like, I have no idea where to even start with this, you know? <laughs> And I'm like, God, where art thou? You know, I'm just like, <laughs> where I got are thou? I had no idea how to even approach this thing, you know? And I just found that girl who made the comment was staying in my hotel. And, and I actually, I, that night I went and I knocked on her door and I said, and, and here I am, I'm the, the reigning Olympic champion, right? knocks on your door and says, Hey, my name's Kelly. I think you might be a Christian and I think you need to tell me about God. And she was like, okay, I know who you are. Yes. Come in. And it was, it was a, a start of a journey for me i had hope for the first time in a long time and i realized that i didn't know who i was and i didn't know who i wanted to be and and i was starting these conversations and started this journey of trying to figure out who god was and basically that day that 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 door i I knocked on i knocked on the right door because she told me hey it's not about being religious and following rules. And that's kind of what I thought being a Christian was. It's like you go to church, you be good, you follow the right rules, you do, you say the right things, you pray, that's that's it, right? She's like, yeah, it's, uh, that's, you know, an aspect of it if you want it to be. But it's about having a relationship with God. And, you know, snowboarders are, people kind of think we're like risk takers, but I would say we're calculated risk takers. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't about to just jump into something that I had never, ever thought about before a day in my life but I spent the next five months trying to figure out who God was and at the end of that I I realized that Jesus was real and that he loved me and created me for a relationship and and so I um I got saved at the end of that that snowboard season in 2004 and um you know at that point snowboarding had become something that I had to do and that's never a good thing yeah you know, I was doing it for the wrong reasons, and I was doing it to prove to people who I was, to to podium at the next event so I could feel good about myself that day, and people would, would like me, and that was just what it was. It was something that I, I had to do to to, maintain this position, um, this identity as an Olympic medalist, and it just wasn't very fun. And so for me, it's a lot of hard work. Oh my so gosh, to uphold that. Yeah, and and. When I started that journey, my faith—I felt like I got snowboarding back. I felt like it was something I got to do, not something I had to do. Mm-hmm. And my perspective changed, and I found that fulfillment in my faith, and not in what I did. And all of a sudden, it freed me up to pursue snowboarding in a fresh new way, and and um, take risks. You know, I think a lot of the time, what what hinders people from performing well. Is worrying about the outcome or trying to control the outcome. And, you know, I believe we're at our worst when we're afraid. And if you're afraid to lose because you're gonna lose some of your significance, your self worth, you know, um, you're not gonna perform well. Yeah. And so I kind of got that sorted outside of my competition. And all of a sudden I could take these big risks in snowboarding. I could push myself because how I finished up at the end of the day wasn't gonna determine my self worth. And I just realized, you know, I spent so many years looking for, um, success and I was really looking for significance and, um, that really shifted in that, in that season between 2002 and 2006. Um, and I, I got my snowboarding back. So what happened? How awesome. I love that so much.
1: So then what? Then what? 2006. You're back at it. You're back at it. You have a fresh new perspective on who you are and the weight of the world isn't on your shoulders anymore because of your faith. And then what?
0: Then what? I, I learned that year a very important lesson that there's a big difference between having potential and being prepared. Mm. And I had potential that year. I didn't decide, I mean it sounds silly, but I didn't even really commit to making that team until the year of the Olympics. And that's a bit late. If you know the, the four-year lead up to the Olympics, it's usually, I mean, now I plan like once the last Olympic ends, I'm like, okay, cool. I, I know I'm going to do it next time better. Yeah, but that's your experience now. Now. Yeah, I wish wish I, <laughs>
1: wish I knew that back then.
0: So I, I headed into those qualifiers and, and I made the team by the skin of my teeth. It was I was the last person to make that, that U.S. Olympic team that year, the last possible event and the last possible run um so I made that team in 2006 just barely and we went to the Olympics um I remember it being special because it was oh, I was just so hard watching you not make the team in 2002 and yeah. then in 2006 I finally got to go to the Olympics with my friend and yeah I remember it just being so special and um it was that was a special olympics we had fun we did we had fun we wore berets and we, we wore fun. berets in the opening ceremonies yeah that's what, that's what you do that's uh that's part of the job description when you become olympian you must wear berets berets <laughs> and ralph Lauren and wave and little sweatpants. american flags and mm-hmm. wear sweatpants mm-hmm. yeah there's sweatpants for all occasions <laughs> opening closing ceremonies yeah so fashionable though so yeah. fashionable And so at that that Olympics, uh, I had the potential to do really well, but I just didn't put the legwork in. I didn't put in the time to kind of get my snowboarding to where it needed to be. At the end of the day, all these different scenarios that I'll talk to you about through all these different Olympics, it always comes down to the snowboarding for me. And um, I I qualified first in the finals, and I was thinking I might actually be able to do this. And um, I knew what it was going to take to, to win that day. And I remember talking to my, my current coach, who's still my coach today, Ricky Bauer. And I said, you know, I've got to decide right now what I'm going to look back at and be happy with. What run am I going to do that I'm going to be able to 10 years from now look back and say, wow, I'm glad I did that. Not, I didn't want to regret anything. Um, I knew, I knew it was going to be kind of a, hell mary type situation but i i knew that i I would rather go down trying than playing safe than risk regretting something Mm -hmm. after the first run you hannah and i were all in the top three Mm -hmm. um and we were we were so happy Uh, but i knew i had one more run that was more difficult and more technical than i had done that was really going to be the the one that would get me the placing where I wanted to be in that top spot. And um, I had decided to do it. And I remember the person before me, um, sure Shirsty, dropped in before me. And I was strapped in. And Ricky looked at me and he he motioned four fingers and he said, You got bumped to fourth. And I was really glad that I made the decision up before. Um, that's something I've learned through my snowboarding is I never want to be reactionary. I never want to let my circumstances decide what kind of choices I make, what kind of runs I do. Mm -hmm. Like I've got to be intentional and I have to be the one like making those decisions ahead of time, not based off of what position I'm in based off of like what I went there to do. And I went there to put it all on the line. And I said, good, well I'm still going to go for it. And I dropped in and I had the best run that anybody had ever seen um, in, in, Women snowboarding until my last hit and I did a front nine and I pulled off the wall and I sat down a little bit right when I landed um and I stayed in that fourth place position and it was one of the hardest things that I've ever gone through the Olympic disappointment I don't know if you can quite capture it in a in a podcast interview Mm -hmm. the what you invest personally and what you what you do, is it, it requires everything from us. And um, I <clears throat> I really realized that there was a big difference between having potential and, and being prepared. And mm-hmm. I can look back and I say, wow, I, I didn't prepare very well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my good friends, Trisha Burns, years later, she made a, a statement to me. She said, you know, Kelly getting fourth at the Olympics was the best thing that ever happened to you because it, it caused you to realize what you really wanted. Yeah. And it lit a fire that, to be quite honest, hasn't gone out yet. Yeah. Um, and it changed how I, how I approached my snowboarding. I knew what I wanted. I knew where, where I wanted my snowboarding to be, and I did it day in, day out. I didn't do it just in Olympic finals. You know, I worked on those tricks. I raised my own bar. I raised my own level. And tried to get to a point where I wasn't going to be, I wanted to be within my ability level. I never wanted to be in that position again where I had to land the run of my life to make the Olympic team. Or I had to land the run of my life to win the Olympics. That's, If you are at the edge of your ability level, it's very hard to enjoy what you do. Mm-hmm. So true. And, and so I just made a commitment. I said, I want to enjoy this. I want to get ready and um, if I hadn't had that faith component in my in my life at that point I would never have recovered from that fourth place Um, but I was able to pick myself back up and kind of reassess what I wanted to do and what I was capable of and go forward and um, I think from 2006 to 2014 was some of my favorite years of my career mm-hmm. in snowboarding. There was some of the most progressive fun years of pushing women snowboarding and enjoying myself and going back and forth with you and with Torah and um, progressing a sport that we didn't know where the ceiling was. Mm-hmm.
1: absolutely so in so in two thousand two, you learned what would you say your biggest lesson was in 2002? That being successful doesn't go hand in hand with being fulfilled. And then in 2006 what was your biggest lesson? Preparation. Preparation. Big difference between being prepared and having potential. And having potential. And then that basically sets the stage really for the rest of your career. You've got You've got your faith, you've got this knowledge that preparation is everything, no matter how much potential you have, no much how no ma- no matter how much talent you have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, good foundations that you're laying right here.
0: yeah, it it laid the best foundation for me that I ever could have hoped. I think another big <clears throat> contributor, well I don't know if we should get into two thousand and ten, perhaps. Yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's, go let's go there. Let's go there real quick. Let's and go to Vancouver. Let's go to Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, heading into that Olympics, I had done the groundwork. I made the team easy that year. It, was, it wasn't easy, but I was a shoe-in. I mm-hmm. I put in the work. I made the team. Yep. We went there. Um, and it was really where I learned to look at things as an opportunity um because the conditions were about as bad as you could imagine uh they had no snow that year in Vancouver and um they actually built the the pipe out of hay bales <laughs> and they were helicoptering in, you know, piles of snow but it was loose granular stuff it was all sugar um, we were supposed to have five days of practice for that event. We cut it down to three. And one of those days was three runs. Yeah. It didn't even count as a they day. They kept even cutting us short on yeah. the two days that we got. And so the pipe was extremely challenging, the ride. One of the most challenging pipes I think we've ever ridden. And there we were. Um,
1: and, I mean, when we're in those situations, too, I think so many people don't realize. they, And I don't even think I realized... As a kid watching the Olympics, I'd never thought about the conditions for the athletes. You just think it's the Olympics; it's the it best.
0: Must be amazing. Well,
1: it's not always amazing. And it's spoiler now, spoiler alert. Than, now more than amazing. ever, most often it's not the
0: best. Yeah. It's
1: Actually, like who can survive and ride yeah. the best in these terrible
0: conditions? Because you want you want the Olympics to be some pinnacle progressive event, and that's just not a reality. In an outdoor winter sport, and it was survival mode for all of us, I, I I, think. I was in survival mode. Oh, absolutely. And um, made it through to the finals again. And that first run in the finals for me, I fell on a frontside nine on my last hit. The same exact thing that I did four years earlier. Mm-hmm and my wrist was really hurting after the fall as well and I went back to the top and I talked to the trainer and he said oh it's most likely broken but we can't do anything about it so just keep going and it was probably my one of one of my greatest achievements to look fear in the face what crushed me Four years ago.
1: Right. You were kind of butt up right against the exact same the scenario. The exact same scenario. I was Isn't like, it funny the way those things happen? Yeah, like I'd you're just, right,
0: you brought right back to it. Right back. I did the exact same thing I did in Torino. And I'm thinking I've got one chance left to overcome. To overcome. The scariest, most uh, biggest heartache in my life that I've ever experienced. And I went and it wasn't my best snowboarding. wasn't the best run I've ever done. But I stomped the heck out of that front nine on that last hit, and it put me into the third, um, third position, and I won my second Olympic medal. And um, I remember, I, I was, along with you and we were some gold medal favorites, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. that scenario. And I remember <clears throat> being at the bottom. And talking to my coaches on the radio. And I was hearing sobs and tears um, from from their end. And I was okay. Because you had
1: overcome something that lots of people weren't even aware of. Nobody
0: knew what I accomplished that night. Yeah. And um, I had had a conversation um, a few days later with with one of my teammates and and they made this comment like are you you so glad it's over and I said I'm actually like and they were talking about the snowboarding season they were talking about the Olympics they they were talking about a lot of things but in that moment in that conversation this person was at a very different point in their career than me I wasn't I wasn't happy it was over I was happy that I got to be part of it I realized in that moment, it only took me three Olympic games to really realize I was doing it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing it to prove to people who I was. I wasn't... I was still successful if I didn't win a gold medal, even though I was supposed to. Right. My coaches were crying. I was fine. Yeah. You know, it, it was just like... It showed to me... That, Your experience. That I mean, that's... It, it exposed what was motivating me. Exactly. And I found... I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Um... Talk
1: about, because I know at at those Olympics, the half-hype was terrible. You're at the Olympics. You're hoping that we can have the best riding to show the world what we're capable of. And it's so bad. And you, you are surrounded by people who are potentially complaining about the conditions, are being really negative, are almost even throwing it in before the event even starts we can fast forward to sochi and we can really talk about that well, if well like so we will because <laughs> it continues unfortunately but how do you mentally say this is still the olympics this still matters even though it doesn't feel
0: like it does because um, i know a lot of people people are at their worst when they're afraid and when they realize that they're not gonna be able to do what they said not to do and sometimes it's easier not to try and it's coming from a fear place. And um, I think that identity thing played a big role in, in giving me a foundation to stand on to approach really hard situations because my my personal significance wasn't tied up in the mess of it all as well. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> I've learned in my snowboarding career to look at things as an opportunity. And that has been one of the greatest assets that I've learned and that I could recommend to anybody adopting that point of view where, where you see the big picture and you realize that there's more than just this one moment and that there's an opportunity in every situation. And between those runs, when I was crushed and dealing with my, my greatest source of anxiety and fear, I went back to the top, and I I looked at my coach, and I said, "Hey, what an opportunity I have to overcome this thing, that has given me so much heartache, rather than I should be winning this event, mm-hmm. and I can't do what I'm supposed to do." Mm-hmm. You got to look at what you can do instead of what you can't do, mm-hmm. and even if it if you walk away um, with a personal victory, that's still a victory. Mm-hmm. And Agreed. I I often find. You value things based off of what they cost you. Um, what that medal cost me was way more than what my Salt Lake medal cost me. Mm-hmm. It's easy being a rookie. Right. Um, I had dealt with with disappointment. I had faced fear in the face. And I had still put down a run. Mm-hmm. And it cost me a lot more. Yeah. And I, I often find myself placing a really high value on that metal because when i look at it, it the metals they're not they're prestigious you know they're historic they're all these they're beautiful they're artistic they're there's so much tradition and, and pride and all this stuff that goes along with these metals but it's what they represent that gives them value you mean in terms of like what it took for you to get them when i see it yeah i see something totally different yeah i see years of of picking myself up again and trying and believing that I'm still going to chase down this dream that I've had since I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's a really different thing. And maybe it comes with maturity and growing up and learning who you are, what you want to do and what you value and why you're motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised by what I found that day. And I'm more proud of that medal than than my Salt Lake medal. What,
1: so that last run, you're kind of back exactly where you were in 2006. And it's a fearful place. Yeah. So is what helped you flip that switch,
0: that idea of this is an opportunity? Absolutely. That is, that is the mindset that neutralizes fear more than anything in my life and a little bit of blink 182 and a blink blink 182 <laughs> absolutely <laughs> those guys called me after salt lake too that was pretty great that is awesome super fan yeah <laughs> big time <laughs> who is isn't? come on
1: <laughs> so that's that's awesome so t- 2010 you your motivation is really different from what it was in 2002 and 2006
0: very much so, and I, I shot for the moon and I missed, and I was still okay. It was a good little heart test for me. So Sochi, Sochi, Sochi mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I went, I, I kind of went on a tear after um, 2010. Um, I actually I actually met with our sports physiologist with the US team. And um, you know, snowboarding is like a new sport, and it's kind of in a, it was in a transition from being like a lifestyle to a sport. And we didn't really know how to even like train athletes that were snowboarders. Like we know how to train football players and skiers and basketball players, but for snowboarding, you know, we didn't really have a lot of data. hadn't been a long, around a long time. Not a lot of people were training snowboarding athletes, and so, anyways, I I meet up with the U.S. team um, crew and. I do my fitness testing, and after the fitness testing, I was like kind of stoked to get my results, and and I was like, yeah, like what, what kind of test results did I get, you know? And um, they looked at me and they said, wow, you're really, you must be really mentally strong. (laughs) And I was like, what? And they're like, it's amazing, you you have two Olympic medals, and you're like almost like don't even show up on our tests. And I was like, what? Like it's like telling someone like you have a really nice personality yeah. <laughs> or you have like inner beauty you know and I could have just been really offended or I could have looked at it as an opportunity there it is again and I said, wow this I, I let's see how, how old was I
1: you're like I'm and really good and I have the potential to be so much better at yeah panting. I'm like that's amazing <laughs> I have all the
0: hard work the mental toughness done
1: that is the hardest work I've been that's absolutely the, the hardest way. work
0: yeah m- most definitely wait just a step back
1: what would you say the biggest lesson you learned for 2010? What was that major takeaway? The idea of this is an opportunity or yeah, your I, identity isn't wrapped up anymore. I was
0: no longer defined mm-hmm. by what I did. Yeah. I felt a new sense of freedom that I was... You don't ever really figure out your identity. Here's like a little spoiler. Yeah. that You kind of revisit it. Like Yeah. Over and over again. You think you figured it out, and then, yeah, and then you go around. Then you comes. go around the mountain once more, and you're like, "Wait a minute! You're like, wait, I've that seen that still this once before. <laughs> wait, how did I get triggered again? <laughs> you never arrive in life, yeah, and well said. That was just part of my journey, but in that moment, I realized I had really grown a lot, and that's something about the Olympics too. Like, I love revisiting all these with you because you just see your personal growth. Like, growth can't be measured. Like in moments, it's measured over time. Mm -hmm. And I was really growing up at this point, you know, I'd gone from 18 to 22 to 26. And at 26, I was like, well, I finally maybe figured this out a little bit. Um, and I decided that maybe I'll start working out. And, um, (laughs) because the test says that maybe you should, (laughs) because the test says I'm non-athletic. Um, And it was kind of an untapped resource for me and I attribute a lot of my success that I found between 2010 and 2014 to that investment. I had never taken, I I had been fit, I had worked with different trainers, I had done different programs, um, but I had never really, like, I'm a pretty um, logical, like, visual, like, I like to see growth and and track results, strategic, strategic, like, that stuff, like, that's in my wheelhouse. And so... If I could track, like, my my fitness gains, like, that's something I'd be interested in. And something that was measurable, that interested me. And so I told the trainer, I said, well, if you have me, I'll give you four years. And I'll work my tail off. And let's see. Let's do this. Like, I don't know what to expect. Um, I want to go to the Olympics again. And I'm a 26-year-old snowboarder, which at the time I thought was old. Apparently it isn't. It's not. I'm a 34-year-old snowboarder um and so during that four year period um i i learned frontside 1080s and i went on a, a 16 win contest streak over two seasons and um i experienced the most consistency that i've ever had in my career and i attribute that to um you know the the years that i spent developing all that kind of mental side of things and that was kind of partnered with this fitness side of things and um, I think I won 86% of the contests that I entered during those four years. Wow. And I would think I was the only person on the U.S. team who didn't require uh, one surgery during that time frame as well. And so it was just this new resource that I had found that I was just kind of embracing and going with. And I figured so I was getting older in my career, I could use all the help I could get to still hang on. And so I went into... Um, so what did that look like for you? I mean...
1: What did, what what was your training? I mean, what was the difference? Because you were fit before, you really were. Mm -hmm. um, But now this is a Mm -hmm. whole other level, so.
0: Um, It was, you know, I think a lot of injuries happen when we have imbalances
1: mm -hmm.
0: in um, mobility and flexibility. So we started there trying to get me even. As a snowboarder, we stand sideways all day. Our back legs become immensely more developed than our front legs. Um, so just kind of getting me squared up was the, was ground, ground zero. Um, and then, you know, I remember I counted heading into the Sochi games. I was, I was working out over 25 hours a week. It was like a part-time job. And even when you were competing
1: and training.
0: When I was training, I was doing a lot of maintenance. The, the intensity was still high, but the volume was down. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as many hours, but I was still trying to hit those, those peak, um, numbers with my weights and stuff, but I wasn't trying to get huge. Um, light and lean seemed to be the the real target for us. I wanted to be durable. Um, I wanted to not get tired. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of some of my goals. Like it wasn't like I'm gonna be some meathead and just make this happen. It was like I ride best when I'm in this body comp. So yeah, we would test when I was performing my best. What was my body like? Then? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's make let's make me like that all the time yep um
1: would you say you were more disciplined during this time very much so. than you
0: ever were very much so um it as a snowboarder you know there's not a lot of ways that we can we can't shoot free throws we can't practice when we're not on snow there's no real way to invest in your craft unless you're out on the hill yeah. snowboarding mm-hmm. and for years we said you know the best thing to get better at snowboarding is snowboarding and I was like I've done that. I have the foundation. I have the mental side of things. I have the experience. Um, I have the fundamentals. You know, I I spent a lot of time working on edging in this time and building up my my foundation of my fundamentals and snowboard pipe snowboarding and and it became something that I could do at home to to invest in my career because before then I I didn't I didn't look at it as an investment. I didn't think of it as like really seriously going to help me. But I knew I was getting older. I knew I needed to be more durable, and I knew I wanted to do new tricks like tens, and I I wasn't strong enough. I tried. I tried to learn 1080s for six years before I actually did them, and it was always because I wasn't strong enough. I I couldn't mechanically do it, Mm -hmm. and I knew that was something I wanted to do. So I was incentivized to to really commit to this program and just invest. That was how I looked at it. It was an investment, and I was super disciplined, and it was six days a week and. And I worked my tail off. Um, I got really into road biking, which I loved, um, and it just gave me the foundation that I needed to continue to progress my riding and continue to to experience consistent success. So take us through qualifying and going to Sochi and. In Sochi, I was man. If there ever was a gold medal favorite, like it was me. Yeah. And. I was on all these crazy win streaks and dominant uh, at the time. I, I won four out of the five Olympic qualifiers. Um, and I was ready. I was prepared. I was within my ability level. Um, and the thing, the thing about preparation that I want to just put a little side note in is you got to be careful... That your preparation doesn't turn into a form of control, mm-hmm. because yes, I have a very high value for being prepared, um, but I had to be really careful that it didn't turn into me trying to control the outcome. Right. Because you start doing that, you can't. You can't. We, we just, we just can't. Can. <laughs> and in conclusion, you just that just don't work. You just can't control the yeah. outcome. And and so that one, that one's not up to us. Yeah, and and that was um you know, I was so prepared and I couldn't control the weather. Big surprise. And we went into Sochi. At, I guess we had gone there the year before for the test event. And it was warm. And we're thinking Russia, it must be cold, but it was warm. And
1: um there are palm
0: trees in Sochi. Yes. It's just Someone, when I was there, someone told me, oh, this is, this is like what the Russians think of as like their Florida. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Why are we having Why win are we the Winter Olympics here? you kidding me? And so, um. This is where we start to learn about
1: the, uh, the politics. The politics. Of the Olympic movement.
0: Yeah. And we knew that there was going to be a good chance that the pipe was going to be warm and slushy and variable. And so I spent that next year, look, every crummy half pipe, every bad situation, every first run fall, every bad weather day, I said, well, this is an opportunity. If this is what Sochi's like, I'm going to get ready. Mm-hmm. And I made the most of every opportunity. Um, and we got to Sochi. And I thought Vancouver was bad. And this was right, right up, right up in there, right a uh, close close second to Vancouver. The pipe was very soft and slushy. The day I competed, um, our, our, um, actually our, comp- our, our practice days, I remember I was the only girl doing tricks um, because I was determined to not let my circumstances right. determine you what You wanted kind of, to be prepared. I wanted to be prepared. I said, if this is what the day's like, I'm going to do I it. i got to do my right. My, my situation will not determine what kind of choices I make. Maybe, maybe I'm hard-headed. Um, I do my best to make sure I don't get prideful in that and make sure that I'm not trying to manage and control my situations. Um, but I, I will push myself to prepare as much as I can and the day I competed it was 55 degrees and there was three rounds of competition in the half pipe from when I qualified. I qualified first in the finals. My first run was at 1 p.m. and my last run was at 9 p.m. Wow. And it was 55 degrees that day. You can only imagine what that did to the half pipe. The half pipe was literally tilted by the end of the night. One wall was completely open and one wall was completely kinked and um... The wall that was completely kinked was the, was the wall, my, my rider's right wall, that I wanted to do my 10 on. I remember in practice, I moved my 10 five times and I fell on it five times in practice. When you're heading into the Olympic final, your, your practice, you kind of want to set the tone for how you're gonna do. And I had yet to land a run. And I tried everything I could to fix it and I couldn't. And so I'm going to the Olympic final having not landed a run since 1 p.m. And the conditions had deteriorated dramatically. I went down to my sports psych at the bottom and I, I remember looking over and seeing all of the U.S. team coats. You know, we have specific uniforms and, and I saw all these Burton coats and it was just a sea of people looking at me like knowing it was going about as bad as it could be going. And here I am the hope of America, you know, and I saw my sports psych and I said, Hey, you know what I need right now? I actually need to have a good cry. She said, all right. So we walked around the side of the bleachers and I ugly cried for about 30 seconds. Cried, not like sniffles, like cried. Yeah. Let it out. Let it out. You know, it's, it's okay to get disappointed. You just can't stay there. Yeah. Good. And I let it out and I pulled back from her shoulder and I said, Hey, I'm ready, what an opportunity I have to land a run when I haven't landed a run all night. So I went up to the top. Actually, this is kind of a cool little snapshot into snowboarding, which I don't think that many people get to see. Tora Bright looked over at me and um, yes, I was a gold medal favorite for this, but she's equally as um, favored for this, this event. They were calling it, you know, Clash of the Titans. Was it wasn't gonna be Kelly or Torah who won. It was just this battle they had made up in the media and Torah looks over at me and I mean it's like, you can tell I've been crying, my face is swollen. And she gives me a hug and she lets me go. And she gives me a hug and lets me go. And I'm still like trying to like catch my breath, you know. And she says, Wow, you need one more of these And she gives me a hug until I can control my breathing. And lets me go. And she says, Okay, let's do this and so her and I both go on to fall in spectacular fashion. In our first runs, she landed and like dragged her head across the flat bottom and I hit the deck so hard I reverse tacoed and backflipped in off the left wall. After landing my 10, I just left early on the 7 because I hadn't landed it all night. Right. And that wall was the one that was tilted open and this one was tilted over, so it was just I launched myself like onto the deck and um, I was covered in the blue dye. I remember I went down to the bottom, and I was more prepared for a first-run fall than I was a poor practice. And it didn't faze me at all. I said, oh, this is what I do. This is what, right. I, this is what I've done. Yeah. I conquered this and, um, in Vancouver. Like, I can handle this situation. Right. You've been here before. And so I went back to the top, and I saw Ricky, and I said, hey, what an opportunity. Good thing I got ready for this. And he said, absolutely. And I looked over at Tora, and this time she needed the hug. Aww. And she dropped in before me. I didn't watch her run. I don't know what happened. And I dropped in last, and I landed the first run. I would landed all night. I was the last person to go in the entire contest. And I landed a run. Um, it wasn't my best snowboarding, but, man, I put down a run. And I remember I was unbuckling my bindings in the finish area and someone comes over to me and starts shaking me and it's torah and i'm like what happened Did you land <laughs> and she's like i landed and we're just she's just shaking me you know and torah sat there and held my hand for six minutes as the judges deliberated and put me in a third position and um i remember caitlin farrington won torah bright got second and i got third I remember standing there for the flower ceremony in the in the finish area, and I remember looking over at, at Tora and saying, "Well, hey, at least we all got one of these now, huh?" <laughs> and it was three Olympic gold medalists that stood up on the on the box that night. Um, she had won in two thousand ten, and um, we were grateful to walk away that that night. But that was one of the my favorite moments and classiest things I had seen from an athlete at that level that doesn't get talked about um where you know of all people i wasn't the person she should have been comforting right you know right and she was there saying i want you to do your best when i'm at my best let's do it it's it was classy and probably one of the greatest showings of sportsmanship that i've seen um and I don't know if I would have made it through that night without her. And again, I thought I valued my Vancouver medal. But, oh, this Sochi one was right up there. Yeah. I, um, what I overcame six runs, mm-hmm. all like six runs in a row mm-hmm. to land one run for an Olympic medal, um, was, uh, you, you say you can't have like a, a victory without a fight. That was a fight. That was a fight. And um, that was one of the that was one of the my favorite moments of my career. One of my proudest achievements. Personally, no one no one would, would see that from the outside. Yeah. For me, that was one of my my greatest achievements. Um, there I was, twelve years after my first Olympic medal, mm-hmm. stepping up and receiving my third Olympic medal and. Um, is one of my favorite performances, and again, not my best snowboarding. Favorite achievements, favorite victories. Yep. Yeah. Doesn't matter what color the medal is. You value it off of what it cost you. It cost me twelve years of believing in my dream, and being willing and having the courage to go after it again this mm-hmm. year. Talk
1: about, you know, this moment with Torah. I I love that you share it because. It is something that's so unique about snowboarding, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've always been asked, are you really good friends with these people or is this just like an act? Um, I think that's what's so unique about snowboarding, but lots of people don't understand it. How are you best friends with your biggest competitors? Um, Can you talk about that dynamic? Because it's not always easy.
0: No, we know that it's not always easy. Um it, it really is unique to snowboarding. We you and I were pitched as rivals our whole careers and and um you know I was also in your wedding. But I am my own worst um you're competing against yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been. Yes, we are We're being strategic and we're trying to do runs that we think are going to get us on the podium or get us in those first place places, but it's always been about the snowboarding. It's always been about me getting better, not me beating someone. Mm -hmm. It it, it has to be motivated internally. I I can't do things for external external reasons. I have to do things. Um, I'm very internally motivated, and so... For me, that balance is like you have to, you know, look around and respect people's space when they need it. Um, and, you know, on game day, we we're com- competitors. And the next day, we were best friends again. Yeah. And that's just something that, that we knew our friendship was more valuable than someone winning or placing. We, I, I knew... However hard it was, I never wanted to lose that yeah. in the midst of me chasing down some dream. I didn't want to lose my friends. Yeah. And so um, I hope, you know, we did that forever and I hope in this next generation that's something that can be maintained and we don't lose from generation to generation to say, hey, the integrity of our sport is based on this. Did you
1: ever feel like... And this is sort of in line with what we're talking about now, but I remember watching Lindsay Vaughn come down and win her first gold medal, and her cry- she broke down crying, talking about how much she sacrificed to get to that moment. And we sacrifice a lot, but I feel like in snowboarding, because we are all truly friends, this is a lifestyle. We're not sacrificing a life to live this life. We're yeah, getting great, to live point. Mm-hmm. a life that we love. Um, so I think that is in line with this idea of the snowboarding spirit. Yeah, um, very and much And I so. think it's what is what
0: separates snowboarding from the rest of the sports. You know, a lot of the, the comments that I got after Sochi... People said that. They said, you guys looked like such good friends. Right. And I'm like, that's what I want to hear. Yeah. When I get done. Yeah. The Olympics that you guys looked like you were having so much fun. Yeah. You looked like you were enjoying each other and cheering each other. Yes and no, but yes. Yeah. (laughs) That day, no, today, yes. (laughs) Um. Yeah. It's a balance and it's not always hard and I don't always do it right. Nor have I done it right all the time. Yeah. But I... If I ever see jealousy pop up in my heart, I'm quick to address it. If I ever have, I, you have to be very aware of what goes on and, and keep good tabs on your motives and why you're doing things and what's really important because it's, it's easy to get lost in, in the mix of competition mm-hmm. to get ahead and sacrifice something. But I don't think that's ever anything I've been willing to do. I've always tried to maintain those those friendships and um, have those be as important. Because as an athlete, I, I want to do my best when someone else is at their best. Yeah, you know.
1: And I think that's a really good comment. You know, like when you do find yourself feeling jealousy, that's a good check for your mind is actually on the end result and not on
0: very much so. Yeah, the it's a symptom symptom of the problem, and it symptom won't help you perform. Problem. It won't help you perform well either. Yeah. If you're thinking about how I'm going to beat someone, but if you're thinking about what I need to do to get better at my snowboarding, mm-hmm. much better uh, way to
1: perform well. So what was your biggest hit takeaway then from 2014? Was that... Still got it. No. Um- <laughs> <laughs> I still got it. Uh, was that um, don't confuse preparation with the end result? Um, or that was, that was in there. For sure. Or not with the end result or being able to control the end result.
0: Yeah, I think it had a lot more to do with not letting my circumstances decide what kind of choices I was making and just that sheer belief in what was possible and that let go. I was letting go of that control. I was taking all the risk that I, I had to take that night and I knew I could lose my dream in a heartbeat but I was willing to take that risk Um, even if I couldn't control the outcome and I couldn't ensure that I was going to end up on that podium I was still willing to take that risk and not let my circumstances determine back down, don't do your 10 do an easier run I I felt like it was like a culmination of me being able to say I'm going to impact my surroundings and it's okay if I'm the most prepared person here and I don't do it It was kind of like a, uh, I was going to be okay with how it ended, no matter Mm -hmm. what.
1: Letting go of control, and then also maybe the value of friendship in this one, too. Yeah. The value of, you know, the other women in snowboarding, and how, like, a single act can... Of kindness. Of kindness can really change a situation.
0: Yeah, and I, I honestly don't think I would have three Olympic medals if it wasn't for that girl taking some time. To make sure her friend was okay. And she would make sure her friend wasn't gonna ugly cry again anytime soon. <laughs> ugly cry. I yeah. love
1: that. Oh, Kelly. So you are potentially going into Olympics number five. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And who knows what conditions will be like. Pyeongchang, South Korea, is not known for its winter conditions.
0: Correct. Cold. They can blow snow, so we're hoping for the best. What is? What's your goal? You know, after the last Olympics, um, it was a big, it was a big shift for me. Um, my peers, you retired. Um, people I had done snowboarding with forever were no longer there. I didn't have friends that I traveled the world with. My community that I'd grown up with and loved was just no longer there anymore. And I was still there. I knew I wasn't done. Um, and before you even get out of your boots at the Olympics, like in the finish area, people usually are like, so are you retiring? So are you finally done? People were asking me, that, are you finally done? I'm like, what's that supposed to mean? And um, I got asked it so many times that I really had to evaluate what I wanted to do and why I was still here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I came to the conclusion that I still had something left to contribute to the sport and that I hadn't hit my potential. That is why I'm still here heading into my fifth Olympic Games because I believe that I have not hit my potential as a snowboarder, that I'm still progressing, that I'm still learning things. And then I still have something left to contribute to the sport. And over these last four years, I've really seen the younger generation come up and I've transitioned from being a peer to being more of a mentor. Um, and I mean, the girls that are on the U.S. team with me right now, this summer we were at an event in New Zealand. And, and if you added up, Chloe's and Maddie's ages, is, it equaled my age. And I was like, wow, this is a really different different scenario than I've been in. Different season, as you like different, to say. Yeah, it's a different season of life, you know, and... But at the same time, I get to champion these girls, and I get to cheer them on, and I get to, to take those core values that we just spent time talking about, that, that camaraderie, that friendship, that high value for community that we have as snowboarders, and make sure that that's instilled in the next generation. Because I'm well aware that these girls would do, they, they will take snowboarding where I can't. And I want to make sure that snowboarding is better because I was a part of it and the best thing that I can do is set people up to be successful and invest in these girls and and so these last few years that's that's what I've been doing I've been pushing myself I I I had a major hip surgery I wrote a book you know it's been an eventful four years um but I'm 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 positioned well to make my fifth olympic team and I hope to hit my potential as a snowboarder and I don't know what that looks like and I don't know how the story ends but like you so kindly reminded me last week, um, it might not be the end of the story. It's the beginning of something else. Exactly. You know, it. I think as athletes we can think when I'm done competing, you know, my competition or my Olympic experience was the high watermark of my life. It's all downhill from here. I, I don't even think my life has started yet. To be honest, we've just spent an hour discussing all my Olympic experiences and accomplishments but there's so much more to life than just performing and doing well and i love competition i love the olympics i love the opportunity i love to see what i've built i love spending my spending four years of my life for a 30 second half pipe run i love that something's probably wrong with me because i love that it's not a very good plan but here i am signing up for it again um and I mean, you know me, you know what I'm gonna do. When I get there, I'm gonna go for it, just like I always do. That
1: was The Art of Living Extraordinarily, defined by Kelly Clark. I hope that you took away some gems that will help you along your way. I know that I have. If you wanna follow Kelly as she goes for it in the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, she is the Kelly Clark on Instagram and Twitter. She's Kelly Clark, public figure on Facebook. Her website is kellyclarkfoundation.com, which is a nonprofit organization that gets kids out on the hill and creates opportunity for young aspiring snowboarders. Get her book on her website kellyclarkinspired.com or on Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, pretty much anywhere books are sold online. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe. Be sure to rate us on iTunes and I would love to read your comments too. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.